Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever... Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, and so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would, this would all come to. And someone came and told them, Luke, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the gospel. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him in a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The Pharisee in a council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, the council, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up, in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were sent and scattered. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or the undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Amen. This is the living word of God. Now, inside the service sheet, you've got a little structure that'll help us 
learn from Luke, from this uh, particular passage in his book. One or two comments by way of introduction, just to remind us what the book of Acts describes. It is a, a factual history. It describes what happened, and what happened is the beginning and unstoppable spread of the gospel, the growth of the church. And the two bookends of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8, the Lord Jesus' words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, and then the bit out from Jerusalem, and then the bit out from that, and then on into Europe, and then eventually to the very center of the world in the ancient world, to Rome itself, the great citadel of the world. And the closing verses of Acts, Acts 28, 30, and 31, Paul stayed in Rome for two whole years, proclaiming without hindrance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts describes the unstoppable spread of the gospel. And the two big applications or uh, lessons for us to grasp from the big sweep or the big picture of Acts, firstly, is to be encouraged, to have confidence that the growth of the gospel is unstoppable. A number of us gathered on Tuesday night in the hub to pray and we were very vividly reminded of that as we prayed for the Sozas in Guatemala City, the Atkinsons in Melbourne, and then China, as we prayed for Jen Wright in Congo, Brazzaville, CU in Dundee and here in Edinburgh, our own endeavors, our work with seniors as we reach out with the gospel. Andrew Kaiser will be here at 11 o'clock from China to remind us that the gospel is spreading all over the world still today as then. People will keep on becoming Christians. That is the first big encouragement from the book of Acts. The second is this. It is an invitation and a challenge, or a challenge and an invitation, however way you want to express it. And that challenge or invitation to the world, and the world, and the church, and people in churches, to recognize the unstoppable, inevitable progress of history. Come on board with God's salvation plan. The book of Acts does encourage us as Christians, but it says to those of us who are not yet Christians, this is where history is headed. The facts speak for themselves. When Andrew is here with us in the second service, just to get a grasp in our minds what is going on in a country like China, it cannot be a cultural phenomenon. It just can't. It's the rapid spread of the gospel in the world. People keep on becoming Christians. They do here in Chalmers, in other churches. Come on board, the Lord Jesus says. It is striking, though, when you read the book of Acts, that the growth of the church, which is inevitable, the spread of the gospel, which is unstoppable, is never, ever friction-free. Never. The gospel advances through friction or opposition. Indeed, very often a significant advance, a significant movement forward, the catalyst for that is opposition. 
Don't worry, I'll tell him off tomorrow. The devil, Satan, the prince of this world, who opposes the gospel, his opposition intensifies as the progress advances. Now, we saw that opposition back in chapter 4. Just flick back in your Bibles to that. Peter and John were arrested, brought before the Jewish council and charged to stop telling the gospel. What did they do? They gathered the church together to pray that they might continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice, they didn't just carry on. They're, They're just ordinary people. They're flesh and blood. I've never met a Christian who relishes opposition. That's stupid. They did not either. But they gathered the church together and said, Holy Spirit, give us boldness. For without your help, we will not carry on. And the Spirit came. And they proclaimed, they told the gospel. And more than ever, Acts 5.14, as we read, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And yet immediately, again, there is more opposition, more of the same. Now, you'll see on the sheet uh, three headings as we look at these verses, the opposition they faced, their boldness in telling the gospel, and how God was at work to advance the gospel. Now, let's spend a bit of time on each one. First, the opposition the apostles faced. The rapid growth of the church, chapter 5, verse 14, riled the Jewish religious authorities. It really riled them. It really riled them, especially since just a few days before, they had charged the apostles to stop telling the gospel. And so, verse 17, the high priest rose up. What is the impression of a peacock rising up? with his feathers, his hackles up, or a religious leader rising up, resplendent in their clerical dress, full of pompous self-importance. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him filled with jealousy. And a striking comment from Luke, what is it that motivated their hearts to oppose the gospel? Jealousy? Burning with jealousy? And then later on, verse 33, blind rage. That's what drove them. So, what did they do? What did they do? How did they act? They arrested the apostles, put them in the public prison, verse 18. Verse 26, they arrested them again after they had been miraculously released And then they beat them. They had them scourged, whipped. Verse 40. Their anger, their jealousy, their actions, and then their accusations. Verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in the name of Jesus, but the apostles had disobeyed. Second charge. They take issue with the fact that the apostles are blaming the Jews for Jesus' death. The end of verse 28. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The gist of their accusations, we told you not to tell the gospel, not to tell people about Jesus, and yet you have disobeyed us. And moreover, you have said that we need the gospel ourselves. How dare you? 
And then the intimidations, the threats, the fact that they are before the council, that big ecclesiastical body, that is pretty threatening. When they do let them go, they are released with the threat of another charge, verse 40, and their lives are in danger, verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So that's the opposition the apostles faced, anger and jealousy and arrest and imprisonment and beating and accusation, intimidation and threats. It is a pretty hostile environment. Now, we have been careful in our studies in Acts not to jump to immediately draw straight-line applications. That is how it was for them. And it is not necessarily prescriptive of how it should be for us. Now, rightly, we've been cautious, for these were the birthdays of the church, unusual and exceptional. What can we say, though? Well, we can say this, that then, as now, in different ways perhaps, the gospel advances in an atmosphere, in a context of opposition. I think we do see that now in the West. It is opposed. The devil opposes the progress of the gospel now as then. I mentioned at the start our gospel partners, the Sosas, the Atkinsons, Jen, and others, our own evangelistic work here. The spread of the gospel will be, is opposed inevitably. There are some parts of the world today where Christians are experiencing exactly what the apostles experienced, the imprisonment, the intimidation, the threat even of their lives. There are many parts of the world today where that is true. In fact, the majority of the Christian world, that is true. All you need to do is get in a shuttle to one of the London airports, get in a plane for eight hours, and you will land in a world that is exactly like the early church in terms of opposition. We don't face that, but we are at the point in our culture, in our history, where liberty to tell the gospel to evangelize is more constrained than it has been. So, are we allowed to speak about the gospel where we work? Some places in some working worlds not so readily. What riled those who opposed the gospel in the early church was not so much that the apostles and those who followed them believed in Jesus. What riled the people in the early church and what riles people today is not that we believe in Jesus, is that we want them to believe in Jesus. The tension comes in terms of our telling the gospel. To be a Christian in our culture is fine, each to their own, but to be a Christian in our culture and seek to persuade others to become Christians is less fine. And that tightening and restriction in our culture will increase. I think that's fair. We're also seeing in our culture an increasing tension between gospel-centered Christianity and religion, or establishment religion. Establishment religion tends historically to mirror the culture, tends to reflect the flavor of the cultural change or drift. It needs to find its foothold, its place in the culture. And as a society shifts, so the sharper the distinction becomes between gospel-centered Christianity and establishment religion. 
And we are all aware just how powerful religious institutions are as they seek to oppose true gospel witness. And I guess for many of us, the opposition we feel is simply that we are a small voice, a tiny minority and marginal, and that even within our social circles, I was at the rugby yesterday, we did really well, didn't we? Our children have only ever been to one rugby international, and they said, Daddy, is it always like that? And I said, yes, it is. I was just, just thinking of the sermon in one of the quiet moments in the second half. And just look around, and there's, what, 40,000 people there. Many Christians were there. 300? We are tiny. And the, the, the kind of opposition we face is just the opposition of being in a minority. Maybe you're in a, a golf club, and you play golf with, and you gather afterwards, and, and you have coffee, whatever, and, and, or a drink in a bar, and, and you just know that you're the only Christian in the room. It's hard. Our social circles, our workplaces, telling people about Jesus, we think will be perceived as odd and arrogant and dissident or eccentric, and may lead to distance, the strain of friendships, even the loss of friendships. I was at a, a dinner recently with two Christian MSPs, and they have made gospel decisions in their lives, and there have been consequences for sure. And in workplaces, it's, it's just difficult. It's hard. It's getting harder. Tightening, education, medicine, other spheres of work. Opposition always is there. Secondly, the boldness, their boldness in telling the gospel. It's very striking how bold they were in telling the gospel. Look at verses 20 and 21. After the angel of the Lord had opened the prison doors. I think if the angel of the Lord had sent or come and open the prison doors when I was there, the last thing I wanted the angel to tell me was, now boys, get back into the temple and start preaching again. Let's retreat out of the city and dust ourselves down and have a new strategy. And uh, the angel said to them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Speak to them about Jesus. That's a pretty tough call. It's not rocket science if you're an apostle to work out what would happen after about five minutes. And yet, when the apostles heard Verse 21, the angel's instruction, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach their obedience. Their boldness in telling the gospel is striking. Verse 25, we get an eyewitness report of what they were doing. And someone came and told the council, Luke, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, the point that Luke is making is the telling of the gospel cannot, will, be, will not be silent. So even as the council gathered before they even know they've escaped from the prison, as the council gathers, they're preaching the gospel. Kind of pops up. It's like one of these inextinguishable candles. You know, one of them, you just can't put it out. You can't douse the flame. It pops up again and again. Verses 29 to 32, in response to the accusations, the charges made against them, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, just try to get your minds around the council. There are a lot of people there, and they would have been, must have been threatening for the apostles. Imagine 
we must obey God rather than men. You've been in a situation where somebody just says something that is just so dissonant in the company. You, you get that kind of low-grade chat that goes on in the room, murmuring. It's a bold thing to say to those who had told them to stop and who had the power to make them stop. And they say, the Lord Jesus has told us to tell the gospel, and we will do what he says, not what you say. Well, how they said it to the council, Luke doesn't tell us. My hunch is that Peter didn't stand up and say, we must obey God rather than men, and sneered at them. I suspect Peter stood up quietly with fear in his heart and said, look, in the end of the day, we've got to obey the Lord Jesus and not you. I suspect that's how he would have spoken. Their comment is striking, and they notice that uh, telling the gospel for them is a matter of simple obedience to God. Evangelism is about obedience to God. Go and tell. Go and be my witnesses. We obey God or not. Simple obedience, disobedience. A lot of the Christian life is like that, I think. Disobedience. Tell people, Jesus says, The Bible has a good deal to say about obeying those in authority over us, whether the authority of the state or our employers. Christians are commended to be exemplary in their conduct as citizens, employees. That's how they commend the gospel. That's true. But in the last analysis, we must obey God rather than men. Now, just tuck that away. And when you go home today, those of you who have children, little children, just reflect forward 20 years and just, I wonder what kind of world they'll be in and whether these phrases, statements really do hit home in their lives. We must obey God rather than men. And uh, that's what the apostles said and say to us, and we cannot evade the challenge and logic of these words they are challenging, but they're logical. In the end of the day, we must obey God rather than men. That's a challenge. In the end of the day, we must obey the one who rules and reigns and who will build his church rather than those who say we should be silent. Now, the Jewish leaders also took offense at the apostles telling them that they were responsible for killing Jesus. A number of occasions, Peter and the other apostles had said to them, that they had the blood of Jesus on their heads. In the end of verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us in response to that accusation. Their response is very bold, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And what they say is astonishingly bold. But in their boldness, they speak the truth. Because it is true that what they need to hear is for their own salvation. And so telling them the gospel, the apostles telling this council the gospel is not to be intentionally provocative. It is because they need the salvation that Jesus alone can give to see that Jesus alone is Savior. It's very important we remember that when we face real antagonism to tell the gospel, and we do tell the gospel. We do it not to spite people. We do it not to show that we are stronger than them. 
We do it not to show that in the end of the day we will obey God rather than men. We do it primarily because they need the gospel to save them. It's not a standoff. It's because they need it. Look on to verses 41 and 42. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. These astonishing verses rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the name of Jesus. That is no manufactured or pretend joy. It is real joy that they were counted worthy to suffer the experience of Christ. And with that astonishing boldness every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. You can almost see them in the temple preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ, looking over their shoulder, thinking, where are the guards going to come from next? He must have expected that. Looking out of the crowd, who were the infiltrators? Who were the spies? Who were there to report them and trip them up? Even as they were preaching that day, people had seen them teaching. Maybe they saw a little group of people running off. He must have been afraid, yet every day in the temple, and from house to house. The only thing they did differently here is they didn't just preach in the temple, they did door-to-door evangelism as well. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel, honestly, not just the right answer that uh, you think I'd expect, do you find that example inspiring or really quite discouraging? Do you uh, look at them and say, yes, I could be bold like them? Or do you look at them and think, I could never be like them? In fact, this is discouraging. I suspect the natural inclination of most of us, if not all of us, is to think the latter. Now, here's the point. Whether we view the apostles as inspiring or discouraging examples of people who tell the gospel with boldness and rejoice even in their suffering, whether we view them as inspiring or discouraging depends on whether we view them as superheroes or weak men. Weak men who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think back to when Jesus called them. Think of the struggles they had to come to understand who Jesus was. Think of Peter, his struggles. Is it not the case that they were weak men and yet empowered by the Holy Spirit Now, there are aspects of their authority as apostles that are unique to them, their ability to perform miracles, how God inspired them to write their testimony, how God used them. But that said, their boldness in telling the gospel is a boldness empowered by the Holy Spirit, not their own strength or abilities. Now, we see that from the text. Look at verse 32. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It's the Holy Spirit that gave them boldness. Spirit-empowered boldness. Now, sit up in your chairs. Listen to this. Here's our lesson for today. It's very simple. And yet, often in church life, In our lives as Christians, we're a long way from this. Sometimes we teeter on the edge of this. And the devil, if he is active 
in this building this morning will be at his most active now to distract your mind that you don't hear this. Here we go. We will never find in ourselves the courage and the boldness to speak to tell the gospel ever. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who empowers us, but we need to yield to him. What does that mean, yield to the Holy Spirit? It means we need to ask God to empower us by the Holy Spirit to tell the gospel. Why does the church lack boldness? Why do you and I lack boldness? Because we do not ask God to give us boldness by His Spirit. And so can I encourage you and myself to pray every day this week, every day for the next month, for boldness to tell the gospel. I wonder if we've ever tried that as a church. My confidence in telling you and I to do so is the Lord Jesus says to us, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will empower you for gospel witness. Why doubt the promise of your king? So will you pray with me every day for boldness to tell the gospel? And do not be surprised if you find yourself with boldness to tell the gospel. You can switch off now. It is striking though. I mean, just repeat the point. Let me come at it another way. Have you ever done that for a month? Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked the Lord Jesus every day to give you boldness to tell the gospel? I never have. Finally, how God was at work. It's very striking in this passage, all the things God did while they just did their stuff. Basically, our job is to be faithful, and yet God does all sorts of stuff that we cannot see. Just notice quickly what he did. Uh, the favor of the people just kind of nagged away at the council, just kind of stopped them in their tracks on a few occasions. The people held the apostles in high esteem when the captain noticed verse 26 and the officers went to rearrest them. They went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned. The favor of the people worked against the authorities. Secondly, the intervention of an angel. Verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. I'd say unusual, maybe unique to these times. The favor of the people, the intervention of an angel. Striking that no one saw the angel letting them out. That's how angels work often. What else? This is the best bit. God uses the advocacy of a politician, Gamaliel. When they heard this, that is when the high priest and the council heard the apostles answering, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They draw their swords and then you can just see it in the council. This old, respected, gnarled politician gets up and he says, We need to have caution here. You can see they all sit down. Oh, it's Gamaliel. We should listen to him. He's respected by everybody. He's respected by us. 
And Gamaliel persuades them. I think he's just a pure politician. I don't think Gamaliel really believes that this movement is of God. I think he persuades them, maybe for his political gain, maybe for the favor of the crowd, just to stand back and let things take their course. God pulls all sorts of strings to advance the gospel. Sometimes extraordinary, sometimes the favor of a crowd, sometimes the advocacy of a politician. You take someone's intention, turn it on its head, turn it right around. Gamaliel expected to fizzle out, but it didn't. Now, the particular ways God at work are not prescriptive. God will do what he does, but the point is that God is at work. He orchestrates events to advance the gospel. He pulls strings. He gets things done. He influences people. For example, let me give you a few. A school that has been close to the gospel all of a sudden allows a scripture union group to begin. Why? Because one or two key personnel changes in the school. Or a CU group in a university restricted from doing evangelism. Suddenly circumstances change because someone in a position of authority is concerned about the reaction of saying no to a group doing evangelism on campus, for example. Or you're looking for a building as a home for the church, as we are. You're not making any headway. Now, I'm not giving you hints at all. We, we are working hard on this. I'm not giving you hints. And, and uh, Remember, we've asked you to pray that God will put into the hearts of somebody who owns a building that they don't want to own that building anymore, want to sell that building. We can't manage that, can we? And I suspect when we find that building, we'll look at it and God will show us all sorts of things that he has done just to render that building relevant to us for the right time. Sometimes, as Christians, everything is stacked against us. I remember a Skype call with the Atkinsons when they went back to Melbourne. They were at the lowest point they've ever been. They were staying in unsuitable accommodation. Their hearts are for China. They really are. They're gifted for China. They both have PhDs. They both speak fluent Mandarin. One is Chinese, one is not. That is a great combo for China. And yet the doors shut one after the other, and then they find themselves today, six months in, teaching Mandarin in one of two universities in Australia, where there are classes in Mandarin. They're teaching all of that. They're now with OMF, and the passage is clearing for them to return to China. What was God doing? Was God going ahead of them with the people who used to teach these classes in that university in Melbourne, that they would move on, that there were places for both of them? Of course he was. Or your friend who is simply close to the gospel, suddenly some circumstance in their life softens them. Or your son or daughter who goes to university or a new job, you're worried about them because they're drifting away from God. And all of a sudden, and it might not be in freshest week, it might be in fourth year, or two years into work, all of a sudden, God puts someone in their path who is a strong, clear Christian. The opposition the apostles face, their boldness, how God is at work to advance the gospel. And let me conclude by drawing two connections. This is the other bit you need to wake up for, okay? One, the advance of the gospel is always opposed, always, always, always opposed. So we should not be surprised if we are experiencing opposition. We must never relish it. We've moved in many ways as Chalmers Church into the world of normality. Here we are. 
We're kind of living on the road. It's a little hard. That's the world of normality. Let's rejoice in that, that we are privileged to be in the world of normality, learning to trust God. It's a good place to be. There will always be opposition. There will always be friction. There will always be tension as we push out with the gospel. Second and third points on the sheet, let me connect these two. If we, I think this is right, if we are bold in telling the gospel, God will not let us down. If we take risks for God, he will come through for us. The Atkinsons were bold, God came through for them. You and I need to be bold, just tell people the gospel, ask for the Holy Spirit, and God will come through for us. On the one hand, spirit-empowered boldness to tell. On the other hand, God is at work in all sorts of ways to advance the gospel. So here's my summary of this chapter of Acts. If we stick our neck out for God, he will never, ever, ever let us down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this very dramatic and powerful chapter in Acts. Lord, help us to realize that opposition is real. And Lord, some of us know that very keenly in our own families. Some of us know it in wider church life, in our working lives. We thank you, Lord, for the boldness of the apostles, not in their own strength, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that there's all sorts of evidence that you are at work, pulling strings, moving hearts, using politicians, using events to further your gospel. If we stick out our neck for you, our God, you will not let us down. Help us to remember that and help us, Lord, very practically over the course of the coming days to ask for boldness, maybe to do on our knees in prayer, what we have never done before. We can find our doubts, Lord, by giving us liberty and hearts and courage to speak the words of this life, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things for his sake. Amen. Amen.